Anyone claiming that America's economy is in decline is peddling fiction. I've abandoned free market principles to save the free market system. But we have to pass the bill so that you can uh, find out what is in it. Raising the debt ceiling does not increase our debt. It does not somehow promote profligacy. I know words. I have the best words. Nobody knows the system better than me, which is why I alone can fix it. Hello, hello. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to a brand new episode of Paddling Fiction. I am your host, the voice and soul of so-called fiction, flying solo today, Johnny the Gentile Profita. Oh, thank you all so very much for listening. Sorry I'm a little late getting this episode out this week. The Labor Day weekend holiday sort of threw everyone's schedule out of whack, but it has given me <laughs> it has given me a lot of material for today's show because that is exactly what I want to talk about. But I do hope that everyone enjoyed their nice long weekend, and I appreciate you all tuning in to listen once again. For all of you listeners not familiar with the show, I talk about politics and current events with an eye toward liberty. And you know, the news has been pretty slow the last couple of days. It's all been focused on Hurricane Dorian and all the destruction that's causing. Maybe that's a topic that we could handle with Johnny the Jew maybe later this week. And so I wanted to talk about labor unions and this may be this is obviously in light of labor day and all of the propaganda that surrounds this holiday so this may be a shorter episode for those of you who enjoy me bloviating for 45 minutes or an hour or so i apologize in advance i will hopefully get another episode out in a couple of days but for those of you who have been complaining that my episodes are too long, well, here you go. This, I think this might be a shorter one. We'll see. I, I never know how long it's actually going to take me to cover a topic. So we all had Monday off, right? Labor Day. We're supposed to celebrate organized labor and all the wonderful things that unions have done to improve our way of life, right? You hear this sort of thing all the time. If you were to go on Twitter over the weekend, you would have seen every political candidate, every politician uh, tweeting constantly about the wonders of government and unions and how it, in light of Labor Day, you should be thanking the unions for building the middle class and giving us the weekend that we all cherish so dearly. You see, the government wants you to believe that we can simply pass these laws and make all these wonderful things happen, and then they take credit for them. You want to increase workers' wages? Well, we'll just pass a minimum wage law, right? Or you want to give them more leisure time? 
we'll just declare the weekend. We'll declare two days off, weekends off, problem solved. Or if you want to make a certain day a holiday, oh, this is Labor Day, everybody take it off. And look at the wonderful, like, see if it weren't for the government stepping in and protecting all these unions, strengthening union protections, strengthening union laws, you wouldn't have the weekends off, and you wouldn't have this holiday, and you wouldn't be making this wage. This is what they want you to believe. But the fact of the matter is that the vast majority of the American people have been propagandized. This is all propaganda, and and basically everybody believes this. They think that labor unions are, are what built the middle class, that child labor laws are what eliminated child labor, that the unions are what gave us the weekend. This is all propaganda. This is just government propaganda designed to get you to be sympathetic toward these unions that give tons of money to political campaigns and back all of their initiatives. This is propaganda designed to get you to believe that government has some sort of hand in improving the economy, improving economic conditions, that they are the ones to thank for everything that is good in your life. That if it weren't for the government and all their protections of union labor, we'd all be living in abject poverty. But this is a bunch of nonsense. Not only is it revisionist history... Not only did we build the middle class with the incredible increase in productivity of the average worker from, say, the late 19th century into the early 20th century, you know, think of the post-Civil War era to about 1913. I covered some of this in my episode on the robber barons. I think it was called the myth of the robber barons or something like that. It was a few weeks ago. Uh, I highly recommend you check that out. Like I always say, I do not do news in a vacuum. So you, you do have to go back and listen to the last, you know, five or ten episodes if you wanna if you wanna be up to speed on things. Doesn't hurt to go all the way back and listen to everything. So not only is this revisionist history, if you just think about it, it doesn't make any sense. But let's back up because why why is it? Why is it that we can attribute all of this economic growth and prosperity, the creation of the middle class to that time period, you know, between the late 1800s and early 1900s, right? Because remember, up until about 1900 or so, the vast majority of people lived in crippling poverty, like a dollar a day in in today's dollars. So for thousands of years, you had the aristocracy or you know the royalty the kings the queens and then just about everybody else was poor there was no middle class that was the dynamic right that was life and remember the natural condition of man is poverty we're we're all born naked into this world with absolutely nothing right you know ha- have any of you ever seen that show naked and afraid where they take a man and a woman and they make them strip down naked and go survive in the wild with practically nothing for three weeks. When the, when the show first started, they were only allowed to bring one item each. Now they've sort of eased up on that and they'll give you like a machete and a fire starter. And then each of you get to bring an item on top of that. And I know that may not sound like much, 
but it is it makes an incredible difference. It's unbelievable what difference that that just those two items would make to your survival. Just that one item alone, like a fire starter, and 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 not having to spend your one item on that raises their standard of living dramatically. So if you have a fire starter and a machete, now you can bring two items on top of that. Maybe you can bring a mosquito net to keep the bugs out at night. You could use it for fishing. Anyway, the the reason I bring up the show is to illustrate just how blatant and ridiculous these lies that you're being taught in school, that you're being told by your government officials, just how ridiculous they are. Because at one point, we were all naked and afraid. And the only way we were able to pull ourselves out of that situation was through obtaining capital, was through savings and investment. That's it. Capital is just a fancy word for tools, for the machinery that we use to make things that we need to survive. And you have to save, you have to save up goods to be able to accumulate capital. Okay, so if you watch an episode of Naked and Afraid, they start with practically nothing, and they're living hand to mouth. They scavenge for berries or fruit, or maybe they try to catch some small animals, some small game, but they wouldn't even be able to catch or kill small game without tools, right? So the first thing they really need to do is build shelter and then start a fire so that they can purify water and cook any food that they can get, right? So they go out and they gather sticks and they gather leaves and vines, and vines for cordage, leaves to, to for, for their shelter, And it's only once they've saved up enough supplies that they can build that shelter and eventually start a fire. They don't get to eat for a while. They have to forego food and water until they've saved up enough stuff to put them in a position to go find something to eat, find something to drink. And they have very low productivity because they have very limited capital. They basically have one tool a machete. They have one tool for two people. They both can't use the machete at at the same time, so that right there hinders their ability to produce the things that they need to survive. But imagine how long it would take them to build the shelter if they had no tools, to build a fire if they had no tools, if they could only use their bare hands. It already takes them all day to build a shelter, the most primitive of shelters, and and some of them can't even get it done before nightfall. They end up sleeping on the ground, uncovered. Some of them are never able, if they don't have a fire starter, they're never able to build a fire. Okay, but let's say they do, right? And after a while, a few days or so, they finally get their shelter built, they get their fire started, they're exhausted, they're dehydrated, they haven't really eaten anything, but they can't not work They can't just take a break now, take a couple days off. They will literally die. Now that they have their shelter built, now that they have their fire going, they have to go out and gather more firewood to keep the fire going. One person has to stay behind and man the fire. Maybe they can make some clothes out of some leaves or something like that or some shoes while they sit around. Or if they're lucky enough to have found water, and they have a receptacle to boil that water and they can sit there and boil the water over the fire while the other one goes out and hunts for food. Now picture at this point, at this point if there was some bureaucrat 
living in the forest. Right? Don't ask me how. Maybe he's just visiting from America. You know, we have no shortage of bureaucrats over here. And he just happened upon these two exhausted, mentally, physically broken, starving, dehydrated, poor bastards struggling in the woods. And after he explains to them that they didn't have to be working so hard, that he could just write something down on a piece of paper that said they can take the next two days off. And he would just wave his magical government wand and and give them the weekend off. Do you think they would take it? Do you think they would take him up on that offer? Of course not. They can't. They want to eat. They want to survive. They want to live. And in order to do that, they have to produce. They have to produce food. They have to produce fire. They have to produce shelter constantly. It's a constant struggle to survive. They can't just take a day off, take a couple days off, because somebody declared it, at least not without suffering the consequences of it, right? And if you follow the show through, they, these people barely survive the three weeks. If they don't quit, sometimes they just drop out. But they're basically living hand-to-mouth the entire time. If they happen to catch like a, a big ant, like a boar, or, or something substantial to eat, they're living high on the hog. <laughs> Pun intended, right? They, they now have, that, that food is now their pool of savings, of resources that they can draw from so that they can enjoy some leisure time. Or they can use that time that they would have had to spend hunting doing some other task. Now they can do something else to increase their productivity and their output and therefore increase their standard of living. Maybe they can improve their shelter to keep more bugs out or waterproof it to keep the rain out or something like that. Whereas if they were, you know, starving, these things have to take priority, right? They don't have time to work on the shelter because they got to go hunt. Now that their, their food situation is taken care of and they have a savings of food, they've freed up some of their time to work on other things. These same principles are at play at the turn of the century when we were actually creating the middle class through increased productivity, and they're still in play today. It's just we're so much more productive now that it's harder to see it. It's harder to see how these things all work out. So now let's go back to the 1800s, right? You're living on the equivalent of a dollar a day, doing back-breaking factory work with very little machinery, you know, picture hundreds of workers doing just about everything by hand, right? And then one day, somebody invents a machine that can do all the heavy lifting and a ton of the assembly of whatever widgets you are making at your current job, right? Maybe as a group, you were putting out 100 widgets a day, and now with the machine, half of the amount of workers can put out 200 widgets a day. I don't know. We'll just make up the numbers, right? Well... Now, all of a sudden, the the labor costs for the employer have gone down dramatically. He only has to pay half the amount of people, and he gets twice the amount of output, right? Uh, our, Our productivity has increased. So he can now afford to pay the workers that he keeps more money and lower the cost of the widgets to the consumers, all right? And the workers that were replaced by the machinery... They, they are, make no mistake about it, they are labor, right? They are laborers. Labor is a finite resource. It's 
it's not unlimited. So now they are freed up to do something else. It's a win-win situation. All right. And you know, the employer, he was only able to get that machine for the factory because he saved up his money and invested in the capital. The machine is the capital, right? So whoever invented the machine was also only able to invent it because he had a pool of savings to draw from to meet his other needs of survival. Just like when the naked and afraid people bagged the boar and they were able to direct their labor elsewhere. Invention, invention requires a pool of savings to draw from. If you don't want to be living hand to mouth, if you want to be able to take some time off work to enjoy your leisure, you have to first increase your productivity through savings and investment. It's the only way, right? So I guess the long and short of it is that wages rise when you have capital investment, when you, have, when you invest in plant and equipment to make your workers more productive. Okay, more goods are produced. The gr- the, there's a greater abundance of goods in the economy combined with a competitive system that puts downward pressure on prices. And this phenomenon is taking place over and over again throughout the entire economy. So this means that every dollar that you earn or every dollar that you have saved or whatever, that dollar can command more goods and services throughout the economy. That is what makes you wealthier, right? That's what raises your standard of living. It's all the stuff that you can buy, right? It's all the stuff you have. Because what's really the difference between a a rich person and a poor person? It's, It's the stuff. We're rich because we have stuff. Poor countries are poor because they don't have stuff. Pretty simple, right? The money is just a way of divvying up all the stuff. You know, who gets what? It's it's the medium of exchange. We don't really care about the dollars themselves. We care about the stuff. The only reason we need dollars is because it's what's used to buy all the stuff. So the lower the price of things, the more stuff you can afford to buy, the wealthier you are. I hope everybody's following this. It's it's fairly straightforward. It's just that I don't know if nobody ever thinks of this, but nobody's certainly nobody's ever taught it. Uh, I, I don't know what the vast majority of people these days think where where wealth comes from. You know, it, it really is unbelievable. But this idea that you can just have a union come along and demand higher wages. Or have a government come along and mandate higher wages without increasing the productivity is pointless. It's meaningless because all you've done now is you've increased the money that people have, but you haven't increased the the goods. You haven't increased the amount of stuff throughout the economy. So you have the same amount of stuff and you just have more dollars chasing them. That just means prices are going to rise. That's all that means. You have to, in order for wages to rise... You have to increase productivity. So now that we've become vastly more productive than ever before, and we can actually afford to take two days off and not have to sacrifice our standard of living, unions come out and lobby for weekends off, and they get in bed with the government. The government protects the unions and declares that you can have the weekends off, (laughs) right? And they act as if they're the ones that made it all possible. 
as if without their decree, we, we couldn't take these days off. When in reality, it was only possible through increasing our productive capacity to the point where we don't have to work as much, where we can produce more in five days than we could ever have imagined producing in seven. That's what makes it possible. Not some law, not some government decree. It's only that we became rich enough, productive enough, that taking the weekends off ever became conceivable. Think back to Naked and Afraid. The idea of taking two days off to those people is impossible. It's not physically possible. And just coming in and writing a law or coming in and starting a union and collectively bargaining is never going to change that fact. So it wasn't organized labor that gave you the weekends. Once again, it was free market capitalism and then the government trying to take credit, labor unions trying to take credit for things that the market provided. It's not the first time the government has jumped in front of a parade and pretended to lead it. The same thing holds true for child labor laws and all these union labor laws designed to strengthen unions. It's all meaningless without the increase in productivity that you get from a functioning free market. All the unions in the world demanding higher wages, better working conditions, more leisure time, whatever. None of it matters. None of it. If you don't have the productivity to sustain everything. I mean, just think about it. If it were actually the case that you just need to strengthen labor unions and that you can have time off by government decree, why don't all these poor countries just do that? Why doesn't Central Africa just declare weekends off and, the, and all these posh union benefits for all their workers? Or better yet, yeah, better yet, a minimum wage. Why don't they just demand all their workers get paid $20 an hour? Problem solved, right? Of course not. When you actually think about it for two seconds, when you think about it like that, of course that's not going to work. And you can start to see how ridiculous this line of thinking is. You can't just give them unions and have the unions force the weekend on them. That's not going to make them better off. They can't afford it. They can't afford to take that time off because they don't have the productive capacity to produce enough stuff for everyone to survive. They need all of those seven days. Now, there's nothing wrong with organized labor or a private sector union per se. That is a necessary function in a free market. Absolutely. Absolutely. They have every right to band together if they feel they're being mistreated or underpaid or their working conditions aren't up to par. By all means, collectively bargain. By all means. But it's also the right of the employer to fire every last one of them and hire new people. That's his right as the employer. The problem occurs when the government starts getting involved, as with just about everything, right? As it inevitably does. The government gets involved, and now you get this disgusting, crony relationship between labor unions and the government. And even worse, you get public sector government unions. I mean, th those are at, oh, those are the absolute worst. Even FDR, FDR, the Messiah of the left, the template for all of their policies, their blueprint for governing, and not surprisingly, <laughs> one of the worst presidents we've ever had. 
<laughs> I go back and forth between him and Woodrow Wilson. Probably depends on which day of the week you catch me on as to who was worse. But FDR is quite literally single-handedly responsible for just about every major issue facing the country right now. Medicare, Social Security, everything that's bankrupting us, he started. But it, anyway, e even he was not for government sector unions because it's a recipe for abuse. I mean, think, of, think about the relationship here. It's just a big, it's a big money pump. The government workers pay dues to the unions, right? The unions donate money and throw their support to the candidate who's going to, the political candidate who's going to promise to increase their union benefits and their pensions all at the expense of the taxpayer. The union members vote for the candidate promising them the most stuff. The candidate gets elected, negotiates with the union that elected him. Everybody gets paid. The union members, they get paid. The union bosses, they get paid. They get uh, you know, power and influence. And the political candidate gets elected, right? And the taxpayers, the ones having to foot the bill for all this, were never involved in any of it. That's the system that we have now. And there is absolutely no place for that. There is no place in a market for a government union. I mean, imagine... Imagine being able to negotiate your salary and benefits with somebody who's not responsible for paying it. It's no wonder these pensions are completely out of control, completely underfunded, bankrupting the country. The unfunded liabilities, the promises that the politicians have made to these union workers are off the charts. So these public sector unions just need to be eliminated right now. There is no place in a market for them. Now, a private union is, of course, a different story, provided that they aren't in bed with the government. You know, what are, what are the odds of that happening, right? Practically none. So it's, it's just another reason why we need to reduce the size and power of government as much as possible, if we have any at all. Because what has happened now is that these politicians can see where the votes are, that the these unions have a lot of members, right? And they will always be more workers than employers. And if you can pander to the workers in these unions and you can get their political support by strengthening their bargaining position, all the better for the politician's perspective, right? Think back to that first union scenario I, I put forth where the workers can organize and they can collectively bargain with their employer, but if they take it too far and they ask for too much or they ask for things that will lead you know, that will eventually drive the company out of business, the employer can fire them. That, that's fair. That is a level bargaining table, right? What we have now is a bunch of laws that the unions have lobbied the government for, or maybe the government offered them up in exchange for votes. doesn't really matter. The point is, is that it's force. It tilts the bargaining position toward the employees and makes it illegal for the employer to essentially do anything. He can't fire them. He can't hire non-unionized workers. There are laws that force any worker in a given industry to be part of a union, even if they don't want to be, even if they don't want to be. I mean, the negotiations that take place in modern day with modern day unions and all of the all of the benefits that they've been provided by government. No other negotiation process is like this. You could surround the business and boycott it. 
You can you can prevent movement from you know to and from. You can stop deliveries. You can stop um, them from hiring alternative workers. How how is this fair? How is this a fair negotiating tactic? If you were doing anything else, if this was any other process, you you would clearly consider that not a fair negotiation. But because it's a union, we make this exception. Why? Why? And I talked a lot about this in the episode about the Yellow Vest protest in France. With, with employers, you, you don't lose your rights just because you employ people. And you don't gain rights just because you're an employee or you're in a union. At least you're not supposed to. We all have individual rights. Hiring people should not change that. Starting your own business should not change that. Joining a union should not change that. All of you people on the left who consider yourselves pro-union guys while being staunchly against corporate welfare and the perverse relationship between large corporations and the government, you know, all this, what, what's referred to as crony capitalism, right? But what do you think these unions are? There's no difference between these large unions and these large corporations. They're all working in their own self-interest to make as much money as possible, to maintain as much power as possible, and they're using the force of government to do it. Unions are only concerned about making money and maintaining power both over their union members and the companies that that, that employ them, and with the government that they need to keep their power and influence. So you should be just as against that as you are these so-called evil corporations, if you want to maintain any semblance of consistency. You see, there's nothing wrong, there's nothing inherently wrong with a union at all. If the market is allowed to function properly, there, there's no problem there. The problem is with the union that goes to the government and says, we want you to pass this law that says it's illegal for workers to work in our industry without joining our union and paying our union dues. We want you to make it illegal for employers to retaliate against workers who unionize against them. Government is force, plain and simple, and they're using the government to force you to do what they want. Without that, Without that government force, the union would have to show themselves to be of a value, to be of value to the workers. It has to provide for them and continue to do so, continue to answer to members that are paying the dues. But none of that happens. You, you lose all of that once the government gets involved and everyone's just forced into it. Then no matter what you do, you're, you're stuck. So why are they going to offer any benefits that they don't have to to the workers, right? They just care about themselves. And my personal feeling toward unions is that they help the worst employees at the expense of the best. You know, the best employees would be better off negotiating terms of their employment on their own. They would most likely get far better benefits for themselves if they didn't have to essentially split everything with all these other workers. You know, if you're a valuable worker, if you're irreplaceable to a company, you can command a much higher wage. You can command all sorts of benefits because you're vital to that company's operation. The worst workers, the laziest workers, the ones who, who don't show any ambition, who just show up and punch a clock, who could be replaced at the drop of a dime, well, they end up getting far more than they could ever negotiate on their own. And anything that they take that they do not deserve, anything they get that they don't deserve, 
should be going to those better employees. That's not the case when you have unions. And then when you combine it with the government backing, whew, my God, it breeds laziness. It breeds complacency. I, I've seen it firsthand. I, I've known people that work in government unions, and my God, the level of abuse these employees get away with is staggering. We actually have one of our dear, dear, dear friends of the show is a, a public defender. And you wouldn't believe the schedule that these government workers get through their unions. Their workday doesn't start till about 10 a.m., right? They have one court session from 10 till about noon, and then they're done for the day. Yeah, technically, they're supposed to work until like 3 or 4 o'clock or something like that, but they all just leave. They all just you know, go to take a, take a two and a half hour lunch or whatever, and then go home. There's no, there's no repercussions for this. They, uh, you know, they don't have to like punch in or punch. They, they might've changed some of the rules. I remember them being up in arms about the fact yeah, that they had to punch out, <laughs> they had to punch in and out or something when they were coming in out of the office so that they could actually prove that they were working a full day. And you know, they can't use, they, they can no longer use sick time for vacation time stuff like that, this is what they would do. They'd save up a bunch of sick time because they get a ton of sick time being in the union, and then they use it during their vacation. It's not enough that they get a ton of vacation time either. They get like three weeks of vacation. Now they, they can stack on a, a bunch of sick time on top of that, not to mention every government holiday off. And of course, there are the, the occasional good worker the public defender in question was one of the few that I saw that actually would work a full day sometimes that would take her job seriously, that, that actually cared about it and worked hard, that wasn't calling in sick every other day, <laughs> you know, calling in sick every Friday, calling in sick every Monday, miraculously getting sick just before your vacation starts and just after your vacation starts. And I would always tell her that she was she was being held back by this union. She didn't need the union to negotiate uh, to negotiate on her behalf because she was a good worker. She was a good lawyer. She could com she could write her own ticket. All the union was doing was dragging her down while pulling up all these lazy employees that were that were calling in sick all the time, leaving leaving the office at twelve thirty. You see, these, these unions, when you're forced into them, it limits your options as an employee. You shouldn't be forced into any compensation package. You should be able to negotiate anything that you want. Maybe you don't want to be part of the union. You should be able to abstain. And even if it, you know, even in the, the private sector, the employer doesn't care. He doesn't care whether or not you take your benefits in the form of payment or in the form of, you know, health care or more vacation time, or what, or anything like that. He's going to pay you what he's going to pay you no matter what. You're either going to get benefits or you're going to get the cash. So he doesn't care. It, it's up to you what you value. If you value more money than you do more time off, then you negotiate that. If you want more time off and, and less money, then you negotiate for, for more time off. The employer, is, you know, it, it doesn't matter to him or her. It, but anyways, these government unions are a disaster. The idea that unions strengthened through government force is what built the middle class is just patently false and, and just absolutely ridiculous. If anything, these unions are detrimental to economic growth. 
And everything you hear these politicians say about unions is, is basically wrong. Basically 100% wrong. Just about everything you hear from politicians in general is 100% wrong. They, the unions, labor unions did not give you this weekend or any other weekend. Free market capitalism did that. Increasing our productivity did that. So on this Labor Day, I know, <laughs> I know it's past, but on, on every Labor Day, don't be thanking labor. Thank the free market. Take a minute and thank the free market for everything that it's provided for you. Because it's catching a bad rap. It always gets blamed for failures of government, for failures of socialism. And then anything that the market does do that's good, the government tries to jump on the train and, and claim credit for it. And if it weren't for the glorious free enterprise system, we would all just be naked and afraid living in the jungle. So don't thank labor, thank the free market. I'm going to wrap there. If you like the show today, guys, do me a favor. Make sure you download and subscribe and share the show with at least two people. Come on, two people that you think need to hear it. Go ahead and share it with them. You can follow me on Twitter at Pedal Fiction. And if you want to become a supporting member of the show, you can go to our website, pedalingfictionpodcast.com. And if you can do all that, I will be back. Until then, just remember to keep on peddling that so-called fiction. Peace.